millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 55. Why did the Romans lose? I want to start today's episode with a big thank you. Thank you so much to those of you who've supported the podcast and got us to the 7th century. I didn't really think this far ahead when I started. I certainly never imagined that I would be deep into learning about the origins of Islam when I thought about continuing the History of Rome narrative. But now that we're here, I'm determined to do as in-depth a job as I can. And it's been so helpful to me to have you guys asking questions at the end of each 100-year period. I have plenty of questions myself, which always guides my research, but your questions give me a snapshot of the things which haven't been clear in the narrative and need to be examined in more detail. Questions have come in on a wide variety of topics, which is great, but there always seems to be one topic which draws more attention than any other. At the end of the 6th century, the most asked question was about Byzantine identity. Which makes sense, right? Now that the Romans no longer live in Rome, who do they think they are? And so, as you've probably guessed, the most asked question about the 7th century was how did the Arabs conquer the Middle East? It's been the big blank space in the podcast so far that I'm hoping to fill in over the next few episodes. However, I think we should cover one angle right now before we even touch on Islam. So before we try to work out how the Arabs won, I think we should talk about why did the Romans lose. A lot of your questions hinted at the apparent disparity between the Romans and the Arabs. On the one hand, you have a centuries-old empire with a world-class military and large resources, and on the other, you have an unprofessional army that has seemingly sprung up out of nowhere. How could the Arabs defeat the mighty Romans so quickly and so easily? I think the answers on the Roman side might be simpler than they appear on first glance. So I'm going to go through why I think the Romans lost, and I'm slightly concerned that some of you will feel patronised. It's not my intention to do so at all, but there are certain facts of how states and armies operated in the ancient world which maybe haven't come out as clearly in the narratives as they should have. So if today's episode seems really obvious to you, then apologies for slowing things down, 
but I hope this will get us all on the same page. So, just to recap, the Arab armies began to make serious raids into Palestine in 634. They won the skirmishes and small battles with imperial troops and began to push north. By the summer of 636, Heraclius had gathered about 20,000 imperial troops to smash them, and instead, they got smashed. The army suffered very high casualties by the standards of the time. The rest routed, and the emperor abandoned the whole of the Levant, moving behind the Taurus Mountains to re-establish his field armies. So if we ignore how the Arabs won the battle, why did the Romans lose and then flee to Anatolia? From our narrative, a number of answers should suggest themselves. Only a decade or so before the Battle of Yarmouk, Heraclius had led out the last field army that the Romans could produce. That army was about 50,000 men strong. Now, that wasn't the entire fighting capacity of the military. There were always some men needed to guard key bridges and forts and cities. But the empire had gone from having six field armies that in theory could deploy 20,000 men each to about half that strength. Now, I don't need to tell you why, do I? Justinian overextended the empire's resources. The plague absolutely devastated them. With the Avars and Slavs lifting the Balkans from him and Khusro the east, Heraclius was left with just the central rump of the empire from which to recruit and pay an army. And as you also know, an army is not effective unless it's already been fighting and winning. There's only so much training one can do before actual battle is needed to prepare men for, well, more battles. 50,000 men who've never actually felt what it's like to have your heart pounding in your chest and your legs turn to jelly aren't going to win anything. That veteran army that Heraclius led to victory would have already begun to atrophy the second that victory was declared. The last serious battle of that war was nine years before the Yarmouk, so a lot of those men might have retired or been moved back to cushier positions near the capital or whatever. Now that's not to say that the army at the Yarmouk was a weak force and that's why the Arabs won, not at all. I'm just saying that it's not surprising that a force Heraclius had had to mould very carefully into shape would not be the same a decade later. Also, the emperor's mind was on other things, including reducing costs. He had had to take a huge loan from the church in the form of all that melted gold and silver plate to pay the army, which won the war. Once it was over, the order of the day would have been austerity. The army was still needed on the border to make sure the peace with Persia would hold, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if retiring units were not replaced. Now again, I say all this not to take away from what an achievement it was for the Arab force to defeat an imperial army. It was a major victory. But one of the things that I read into your questions is the feeling that, you know, that's it. They lose one battle and it's all over. The Romans lose one battle and they don't want to fight anymore. A millennium plus of martial supremacy and suddenly they're afraid to take the field. But hopefully you can see that the Arab victory at the Yarmouk came at just the wrong moment from a Roman perspective. 
Once that battle was lost, there was almost no hope of finding a strong enough army to retake the field. Remember that you need men, money, and you need to win to create an army that can confidently take the field. With the eastern provinces gone again, and the Balkans still out of imperial hands, where were the resources going to come from to replenish the barracks? Perhaps if the Arabs had stopped attacking, there might have been some breathing room. If the conquerors simply settled into their new homes in Damascus and Jerusalem and left the Romans alone, then Heraclius' descendants could have attempted to do what he had done, gather the army together, rebuild them from scratch, and attempt to devise a strategy to counterattack. But instead, the Arabs kept up the pressure by attacking, which meant that the remaining field armies had to stay in Anatolia to protect the approaches to Constantinople, which left no room to rebuild, and frankly, there was no money left to recruit the soldiers necessary. And that's another point we should all bear in mind. There is a natural limit to the size of armies which a state can recruit. If you start dragging every able-bodied man you can off their farms, then soon enough the farm work won't be done, and tax revenues will drop, and there won't be money to pay the men you just gave swords to. And Anatolia was in no state to support larger armies. It had been a war zone for three decades, and the plague still popped up now and again to kill off the young. One of the keys to the Roman Empire's longevity is that it was such a vast empire that even in the dark times, enough men and enough money could be found to keep an army in the field. But the story of this podcast is the story of how piece by piece those resources were either taken or frittered away. There was no West to call on anymore to send a relief force. There were no Balkan armies to transfer east. The empire was in such a weak state that it only had one spare field army to send against the Arabs. That field army lost, and with it went the whole of the east. Speaking of the east, I think another point that I hope we can all get on board with is geography. My father told me something which a history teacher of his once told him, and it's one of those great pithy summations about history that we all like so much. He said, history is 90% geography and 10% common sense. That may be an exaggeration, but the more I've read about history, the more truth I see in that statement. I know some of you are not very familiar with Eastern Europe and the Middle East, and I'll go on doing my best to describe it for you in audio. But I think if you look at a map and familiarize yourself with where all the mountains and deserts are in the area, then a lot of things will become clear. I've done another scan uh, of a very simple map to help you achieve this, and you can find it on Facebook or at the website. It comes from one of my favorite books, Colin McEverdy's Atlas of Medieval History, which I cannot recommend enough. And uh, it's quite affordable on Amazon. You can find out more about it on the bibliography page at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. Anyway, when you have time to look at this map, you can see the distribution of Europe and the Near East into farmable land, into steppe, into mountain, and into desert. And once you understand the significance of that geography, so much of the story falls into place. I'll be returning to this map 
again and again across these end of the century episodes. So why did the Romans lose, or why did it only take one field army losing to hand the Arabs control of the whole of the eastern Mediterranean? The answer is that the Roman Empire was built on naturally defensible frontiers. The Atlantic Ocean in the west, the Sahara Desert in the south, the Rhine and Danube rivers in the north, and in the east, the Syrian desert and the mountains of Armenia. Now, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the latter two and the competing imperial regimes in Rome and Persia and all the various motives which drove them to attack one another repeatedly. But another way to look at that whole story would simply be to say that the border between Rome and Persia was just too permeable not to lead to constant war. So because it was possible to march an army through the gap between the rocks and the sand, both sides repeatedly did. Once in enemy territory, though, there weren't any naturally defensible frontiers nearby, which made it hard to keep what you'd taken. If, in another world, the Armenian mountains were completely impassable for an army with pack animals and siege equipment, or if the Syrian desert just stretched away forever like the Sahara does, then Rome and Persia probably wouldn't have bothered going to war at all. Instead, they might have struck up mutually reassuring propaganda about how the world was clearly meant to be divided between their two spheres of influence. Instead, though, there was constant antagonism. The Romans, of course, spent the bulk of their defence budget on the cities and forts facing east. Their number one priority was to keep the Persians out. There were no forts, or cities, or armies, or lookout posts aimed toward Arabia. None. There were local garrisons, of course, but they were there to keep the peace between Roman citizens or chase off brigands. They were not designed to prevent an organized invasion coming from the desert. There'd never been one in the history of the empire, so why would there be defenses for it? This gave the Arabs a great advantage, of course, and it meant that even if some miraculous Heraclius-style counterattack had come, it would have had no logistical support at all as it attempted the long, hot, obscure journey down toward Medina to try and crush the source of the invasion. The route to Tessaphon was far simpler by comparison, given the centuries of knowledge stored up about it and the willing accomplices that could be found in Armenia and the Caucasus. Another factor in this is that the Romans never developed much in the way of defences for Egypt. When Khusro's armies broke into Palestine, that was it. Egypt lay open. Again, the Romans had no reason to think that Egypt was ever under threat from anyone except the Persians. Egypt was surrounded on three sides by desert and on one side by the sea. The defences of Egypt were in Dara and Theodosiopolis. Roman strategy was built around the Persians being the only threat to their richest province. Again, they were completely unprepared for the Arab neighbours of the land of the Nile to suddenly seize it. And so what did the invaders have to do to win the richest prize in the known world? They just had to win one battle in Syria. If they could defeat the field armies there, then Egypt was theirs. 
As you saw in the narrative, the government in Constantinople could ship in European field armies to try and cling on, but the Arabs were now far closer to the scene and far more familiar with conditions, not to mention that they were now a winning army. Their ranks were filled with those who knew what to do when the going got tough. The final point I want to make about geography is something I always try to explain to non-ancient history fans, so this may seem obvious to you. But winning one battle was sometimes all it took to exercise authority over a vast area of land. In today's world, because international borders are so fixed, it can be hard for people to imagine a world where they were far more fluid. Even if we think back to a famous historical conqueror like Napoleon, we tend to think of international relations in a modern context. So if Napoleon wanted to conquer a country, he would march up to their well-defined border, locate their state's army, defeat it in battle, then he would march on their capital city to get terms agreed with their government. Only then could that country be annexed into the administrative machinery of the French Empire. But that sort of scenario did not often exist in the ancient world. In the world we're looking at, political control could be exercised for hundreds of miles in any direction if everyone living in that area knew where the nearest army was. So in Byzantium, Egypt remains the best example. Egypt is, of course, a huge country hundreds of miles wide. There were garrison troops in the province, but in theory, an uprising amongst the Egyptians, if passionate enough, could have killed all of those men or driven them off and declared independence from the Roman Empire. The major deterrent against that was the field army in Syria, some 850 miles away. The point being that the Roman state's ability to raise money, train and pay soldiers, transport them that distance and deploy them to crush a rebellion was enough to keep distant provinces calm. In an era where technology and transport were very poor by our standards, the ability to monopolize organized violence was more than enough to conquer vast areas of land. This is, of course, not a new story to you. When Pompey defeated Mithridates in 63 BC, a battle that took place up in the Caucasus, he was then able to annex Pontus, Bithynia, Syria, Cilicia, and Crete, as well as march through Lebanon and Israel, giving orders on who should be in charge of what. After one battle, Roman might was understood by people for hundreds of miles around to be the new political order. Back in 636, of course, the Romans had gathered all their effective military strength into the field armies. There was no tradition of regional military strength. In fact, the Roman state discouraged any local militias from developing because of the potential for political sedition. So once the Arabs defeated the field armies at the Yarmouk, there wasn't an organized military capable of standing up to them for hundreds of miles. As you saw during the Persian invasions, the cities of the east were not at all interested in the kind of backs-to-the-wall guerrilla resistance that would have been needed to tie the Arabs down until an imperial army could return. The people knew the reality of the situation. With the imperial army defeated, there was little point in resisting. So the base of Arab power in Arabia now had clear access to Egypt 
Palestine and Syria, with no natural physical barrier to slow them down. The nearest impassable barriers were the Mediterranean, the mountains and deserts separating Egypt from the African Exarchate, and the Armenian and Taurus Mountains. And sure enough, those were the places where the initial invasions first paused. I hope that's gone some way to answering the question of why the Romans lost, or perhaps just made it clearer why their loss was not actually as surprising as it might seem. Really, the change in Rome's fortunes go all the way back to the crisis of the 3rd century. During the Republican and early Imperial periods, the Romans came up against opponents who were either not as tough or not as organised as they were. Their amazing military record took them to the natural physical frontiers of the Mediterranean world. But that success came at a price. And that price was forcing the German tribes in the north and the Persians in the east to become better organised themselves. When both those opponents were attacking at once, it became very hard for the Romans to overwhelm them. If they could transfer men from the west to help crush the Persians, or men from the east to come and fight the Germans, then they would be able to use their numerical superiority to carry the day. But once west and east were both engaged in their own wars, it was suddenly possible that one field army's defeat would open up hundreds of miles of undefended territory. We actually saw a very relevant example of this during the crisis of the 3rd century. Do you all remember Odenothus of Palmyra? When Valerian was defeated and taken prisoner by the Sassanids, the east lay open, exposed to further Persian attacks because of the big field army's defeat. Out of the Syrian desert rode Odenothus and his Palmyrian cavalry. They were able to repeatedly get the best of Sharpur's men and become the effective army of the Roman East. An army of men from the desert were able to replace the Roman field army after just one defeat. And of course, it wasn't until a very large army from the Balkans came east to defeat them that the Palmyrians lost their power. In our story, the absence of the West spells the end for Roman rule in the East. In fact, to tie East and West together even further, you could say that the Western Empire fell because a third opponent appeared in the strategic mix. Back then it was Attila the Hun, who frightened the Germans into crossing the border and taking their chance inside the Western Empire, which ultimately spelt its doom. Here now in Byzantium, even the combined might of the Avars and the Persians was not enough to destroy the empire. But add the new Arab state into the mix, and it was all over. With all of that context in mind, I think we can now turn our attention to that empty space and begin to explore what had happened in Arabia that suddenly created a state capable of supporting armies and winning battles. If much of today's episode was obvious to you, fear not. Soon enough, we will be delving into things that I think will be pretty new to your ears. Next time, we begin by answering the opposite question from today. Why did the Arabs win? <laughs>